Thank you for being here. I acknowledge that the city of Hamilton, where I record this podcast, is situated upon the traditional First Nations territories of the Erie, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, Mississaugas, and the Chonodon of the so-called Neutral Tribes. Hamilton is also directly adjacent to the Haldeman Treaty Territory. Hamilton is home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and this land acknowledgement is a small gesture to recognize the rich history of this land and so that I can better understand my role as a settler, as well as a neighbor, partner, and caretaker. Miigwech. Thank you. Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. Conversations about gender identity continue to be challenging to navigate for many people. The changing terminology, the assumptions and social norms. How can we best support our friends, colleagues and loved ones as they try to express their identity? Stefan de Villiers shares how he navigated his own gender transition, growing up in two cultures and a challenging family dynamic. Thank you for listening. This is episode 47. Thank you very much for being a part of my podcast. Thank you for having me. I was very taken by your story, and the arena is about living courageously. Mm -hmm. It was inspired by the Teddy Roosevelt speech, the man in the arena speech. And in making the changes that I did in my life, I found other people's stories to be a source of inspiration for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in always learning about people and what they've gone through, what carried them through. Is there a quote? Is there a, a person that inspires you? And so in putting together this podcast, I really wanted to focus on ordinary people. Mm -hmm. And their stories as opposed to somebody who is famous or highly accomplished. While they may have had very humble be beginnings, by the time you know them as a famous person, it's hard to relate to their right. story. So people who uh, show up with everyday courage is what, what I wanted to focus on. All that being said, thank you. Thank you for being willing to share your story here. And, and this will be a story I'm sure that the listeners will get a lot from you've you've lived quite a quite an interesting life <laughs> and so anyway so why don't we jump in i have an intro for you which i always invite my guests to correct okay <laughs> interject if, if necessary stefan de villiers you are a husband fur daddy to two dogs lucy and lola you are a psychotherapist with a master's degree in clinical social work and you're a podcaster. You were born in South Africa to Afrikaans' parents. Growing up, your family moved back and forth between Canada and South Africa four times, which caused a first layer of tension around your identity. You related to being Canadian more than South African. Your parents were proudly South African and expected you to embrace that identity. Your time in South Africa left you feeling unsafe, and the regular moves meant you were always the new kid trying to fit in. Growing up, your father suffered from a lot of health issues. You lived under a constant fear that he would die. You looked up to him, but feared his temper. Maybe your behavior would be the cause of his death. 
you were an anxious and high energy child. You tried not to be too much. Your relationship with your mother was difficult. Over time, she became your father's caretaker. And as his illness and mobility issues became worse, she became resentful. She bullied and humiliated him in front of you. You were depressed, and by age 12 began to have suicidal thoughts, believing you couldn't live past 30. Puberty brought on more questioning of who you were. You didn't like feminine things. You wanted to be independent of your mother, who didn't respect your boundaries. You escaped into books, Shakespeare, Dickens, King Arthur. You related to the male characters more than the female, though you were attracted to men and women. In 2004, after more than a decade of struggle, you began a gender transition. It was your last shot at life. The process has been difficult, but a relief. It was a life and death decision. Skipping ahead a bit, you've built a new life. You got married and chose a career helping others as a mental health clinician. There is certainly more to your story. (laughs) Welcome to the arena, Stefan. Thank you for having me. I know that I only scratched the surface that there are many other parts of that larger story, but it's, it's incredibly challenging to think about someone who spent almost 10 years in a state of depression, in a state of questioning who they are and questioning whether it was worthwhile continuing to live. When I know as much as I know of you through our interactions, and it's one of those things where what gift to the world would we all be missing if you weren't here? Well, that's beautiful, and I appreciate you saying that. It's I mean, absolutely it, true. <laughs> I'm glad I'm here, too. At this point in my life, there's so much to be grateful for, and there's so much beauty in the world. And yeah, I'm glad I got through, not that it's always roses and sunshine, but I'm glad that I got through, I think, the darkest period of my life. And I'm here to share it, share life with you know people that I care about and people that care for me as well. Mm-hmm. I skated over the fact that you began life as a girl, transitioned in your 20s to a man. And it's all around the language, right? What's cisgender? What's bisexual, transgender? And so what I would like to do for the listeners, explain what's with the she, her, he, you know, all this sort of thing. What do these pronouns mean? What is this all about? And why is it important? Mm. And my understanding is, so I am a cisgender, which means I identify with the gender that I was assigned to at birth. So I'm a female, I was born female. And the majority of people are cisgender. And so when I meet someone for the first time in asking them their pronouns, that is a way of creating space for someone who does not identify necessarily as the gender with which they were assigned. It's not about their sexual orientation. Right. It is about their gender identity. And there's a divide between your sexual orientation or your sexual preference versus your gender identity. So we're getting into some deep waters, but I want to make sure that the listeners have an opportunity to put this in context because it's floating out there and I know I'm supposed to do it, but I don't really understand it and it makes me nervous. And So the idea is really 
to create an inclusive space. So if you offer your pronouns, it gives them an opportunity and allows them to understand that this is a safe space for them to be able to claim their identity. Mm. Is that a fair way to to explain that or was that way too complicated? (laughs) No, I think that was spot on. I think, again, speaking for myself, a lot of my life, I really felt like i didn't know where I belonged and that the world didn't really have a place for me. And a lot of people that are trans or non-binary go through that experience. And I think the movement to make room for more pronouns than he or she is really about saying that we want some space to exist and we want to feel like we have something to contribute to the larger conversation, to the larger society. And we want to not be erased. And so pronouns can be a powerful way of not erasing people. It can be a way of letting them be seen and letting them be heard for who they are. So yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's sexual orientation, which is who you're attracted to. And then there's gender identity, which is more about what you, how you feel about yourself on the inside in terms of your gender. And the terms are still in flux because it is a sort of a new language. People that have been gender nonconforming have always existed in every society. But I think in Western society in particular, we haven't really been very good at creating space for those Mm -hmm. identities. And I think the movement for visible pronouns is about that, is about creating space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I know it's exhausting, I am sure, to have to enter into these conversations all the time and be the one who's trying to explain, which is why I tried to step into explaining it as opposed to saying, can you educate us, please? No, (laughs) No, I appreciate that. So I appreciate you being willing to share that perspective, because I think it's important. And the more times that it's heard, it can, it becomes easier to say, okay, no, I get that. And I, I've heard of that before, or I, I understand, or I appreciate. And I think personally, I think the majority of people want to try and do the right thing. I agree. Change is hard, and people, I think, often feel like they are being asked to give up something um, by adopting a new way of speaking. And I get that resistance. Like, I do understand it, that it's scary when you don't fully understand Mm -hmm. what it is that you're being asked. Mm-hmm. and where it's coming from. And there is still a lot of questions around it. Not all trans people actually want to <laughs> announce their pronouns. And it's still, uh, yes. even within the community itself, it's not a settled yep. issue, which makes mm-hmm. it complicated because what does that mean for everybody outside of the community? They're also trying to navigate this. And I think at the end of the day, all we can really do is you know be kind to one another as we navigate these kinds of questions and Again, coming back to that idea of not falling into cynicism or resentment, I think at least initially approaching others 
with good faith that somebody is announcing their pronouns, that they're not trying to do that to annoy you or uh, make your life difficult, that they're trying to use their voice and be seen. Well, and, and, and sometimes there's an assumption that it's an assertion of your sexual preference, hmm. which again, it's not about that. That's a completely separate issue. But it's this whole, like, why do we have to talk about sex in, a, in the context of work? Or it's not a thing. <laughs> That's not what this is about. So again, it's the lack of understanding, the lack of, of proper information about what this whole movement is about. And as you say, and I, I think you said in your podcast episode as well, it's different in different countries. So it's about staying open and staying curious and allowing a certain level of, hey, I, I may not know. So asking in a respectful way is a way of being able to overcome that yeah, and I potential think misunderstanding. Privileging the relationship, right? Seeing it as, how can I treat this other person with dignity and respect? And mm -hmm. that might look different for this person than it might for this other person. And that's true whether you're dealing with a trans person or dealing with a person from another, you know, racial background, there is exactly. an element of needing to be open to learning about that other person's framework and how you want to, how do you want to create some space for each other in that interaction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I touched on your growing up to a degree, but take me back to dinner conversation growing up in your household. Yeah, like? yeah, sure. I always feel like my life is divided into two two uh, areas. So the first is really my first memories of Canada, really, growing up there. And that was probably more of a happy time for me, to be honest. Those early days in, in Canada, there was a sense of family and there was a sense of just exuberance, I would say. You know, I have positive memories of my parents. My father would play like Zorba the Greek every Saturday morning and we would come down and <laughs> dance around the table or, you know, there was a lust for life and there was fun. Dinner table conversations were often arguments or debates about science or philosophy. Like my dad was someone who loved ideas and learning and would love to get into some sort of verbal argument about something. So there was a time that I do remember that there was happiness. And that really shifted when we went back to South Africa. So the first time we went back, I was around the age of three or four. So I don't have a whole lot of memories of that time, although I do have some snippets, some fragments. And that was a pretty miserable time. And so I don't even remember dinner time around that table but later on so the when we went back when I was 11 that time that's when I really started to notice that my family was not doing well and that something had shifted mm. quite dramatically and I should say that my memories of my growing up is very different than my siblings and what they remember so for example mm. they really came from South Africa to Canada, they're much older than me. So they really identified more as South African, whereas my earlier memories are as being a Canadian. 
And so their memories of Canada are not as positive as mine because they were the outsiders when they got to Canada. They were teased at school. They had an accent. They had to learn a new language, all of that. So for them, Canada does not represent happiness (laughs) in the way that it does for me. So there's also that piece. But yeah, so dinner conversation in South Africa was a lot different. And it almost felt like it was a foreign world that I had entered because everything changed about how I related to my parents. I was expected to talk to them differently. I was expected to behave differently. There was a lot of social expectations that were just new (laughs) and I wasn't familiar with what was expected of me. And dinner conversations really dwindled and we weren't really a family unit anymore. It felt like everybody just kind of did their own thing. I think my father was probably quite depressed um, as well. And yeah, I think everybody was really alone together (laughs) trying to figure out how to cope with the new reality. And he was dealing with a lot of health issues as well. So yeah, I guess dinner conversations still occasionally we would have arguments and debates and things, but there it wasn't as playful or joyful as it had been before. And actually, I do remember that my dad loved the radio and we would listen to the radio a lot. And I, I wonder if that's where my interest in audio and podcasts and all that has started. And he listened to a lot of news, but a lot of music, classical music, and just stories. So yeah, I think... Probably my love of audio comes from him as well. What's your first memory of him becoming sick? And I don't have a first memory because he was always sick. That was right, normal. Right. So he had a kidney transplant at the age of 25. He had a strep infection and it spread to his kidney. And he was one of the first persons to receive a transplant in South Africa. And he barely survived that surgery. And that was before I was born. And having gone through that experience, he almost died. And the fact that he survived was always a miracle. And so all the time after that was borrowed time or uh, time that you couldn't take for granted. So Mm -hmm. by the time I came around, he was 39 when I was born. So he was quite old by the time I was born. He was still physically active. He could go on hikes and walks and things, but he had vertigo. He would sometimes black out. He would bump into things and bleed a lot. And and so there was just a sense that he was a fragile person <laughs> physically. And then over my lifetime, it just became more and more of an issue because of the drugs he was taking to not reject the organ that he had received, basically it eats away at your muscles. And so Mm. his muscles kept getting weaker and weaker. Eventually he ended up in a wheelchair. He also had severe rheumatoid arthritis where his, you know, hands were quite swollen up and his ankles were bent in so he couldn't really actually stand on his feet. So it was just a slow decline over the span of my lifetime I don't really remember him as ever being healthy. Yeah, so I guess that was just always a reality in the back of my head. And you spoke about feeling like you were a problem. You you described yourself as being hyper and difficult, labeling yourself in that way. So I was just curious where that came from or how that developed as as an identity, really. Yeah. The problem child. 
I was definitely the problem child. I think it came from the fact that I was an outsider within my family unit because my family was, like you said in the introduction, proudly South African and my sisters much more so than I was. I didn't behave like them. I wasn't well behaved. I wasn't crossing my legs and sitting properly and keeping my mouth shut. I was running around and rambunctious and outgoing in a way that was I think, surprising to my parents. It was outside of their realm of understanding because that's not how they grew up. And certainly the Mm -hmm. culture that they grew up in is a lot more like children are to be seen, not heard. And I think they gave me a lot of flexibility in some ways while we were still in Canada, but that sort of got clamped down as soon as we went back to South Africa. And so I guess that sense of being an outsider, I was also a lot younger than my two siblings. And so they were 11 and seven years older than me. And they were very close to each other and did things together. And I was always wanting to be part of it and clamoring to be included. But in the process, I was the tag along. I was the person that nobody really wanted to have around. And I kind of had to wheedle my way in there. And even just my interests were different. Like I was, like I said, Canadian. So I liked hockey. I played outside with the boys. I played soccer. And I was just climbing trees and just didn't have the same frame of reference and the same interests that the rest of my family had. And I definitely felt that. And so I also felt caught between different languages, like literally too, because my family, their first language was Afrikaans, you know, my sisters as well. My first language was a mix because at home I was speaking Afrikaans, (laughs) but then I would go outside with my friends and speak English. And for a time there, I was speaking like this mixture of Afrikaans and English, and I couldn't speak either of the languages properly. So I was like literally trying to navigate two worlds all the time. And so that sense of being an outsider was there from the start. What event in your life had the most profound impact on you? You know, I think looking overall at my life, it would probably be my father's death, just Mm -hmm. because that was a moment that made everything very real. All the conflicts, all the disruptions, all the fault lines were visible all of a sudden in a way that could have, were ignored up to that point, I think. And yeah, when that happened, it really shifted the way I saw myself and it shifted the way I interacted with my family. And it was something that I still am working through today. Like it's not something that goes away, not because people die. And I think that's not so surprising. It's more just the complexity of that death and what it meant, not just for me, but for my family and how to make sense of that and how to make it a meaningful experience and how to honor my dad moving forward as well. And part of that is the fact that basically a year before you had transitioned, your family was unaware at that point? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, again, so <laughs> talking about being an outsider. So my sister, my eldest sister and I were living in Canada. She had married a Canadian, so she had stayed here when we had gone back when I was 11. And my other sister was in England because she had married a 
British person and was living there. So when my dad died, none of the kids were in South Africa and he and my, my mother were living there. That was hard because you know, my sister was pregnant, so she couldn't fly to go back. My eldest sister went back, but came back to Canada before he passed away and so couldn't afford to go back because it's not cheap flying back and forth to South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she also runs a business. There's that. And then there was me and I couldn't go back because I wasn't out to everybody there. His friends didn't know he was ashamed of it, that I had transitioned and really had given the message that he couldn't accept it. And so I really got to a place where I had to make a choice between do I honor my dad by going to the funeral and making it about me because in some ways everybody's going to be looking at me and it's going to be not a good way to honor him or do I stay away and mourn from a distance? And that was mm -hmm. probably the most difficult decision I had to make in my life. And I do think I made the right decision, which was to not go back at that time. Well, I believe I actually sent an audio recording message that they could play at the funeral. And actually, no, it was a written piece that they read at the funeral. I, I got to participate, <laughs> at least from a distance, but it was tough. And I think... What made it really hard was for a long time I had delayed transitioning because I was feeling like I don't want to upset my family and I know my dad is ill and maybe I just wait until he dies and then I can transition. But then I was thinking about that and it was like, that's really morbid. Like, I don't want to, you know, wait for him to die so I can do this thing that I feel like I need to do. I can't wait around for him to die. Like, I don't want him to die. And so I was really stuck between, between two hard places and I decided that I was going to start the transition, but I didn't really talk to them about it because I knew how they would respond. I knew that they wouldn't understand. And growing up, there was, I would say, some homophobia in my family. My dad would make comments about people with AIDS and my mother would make comments about lesbians. And there was just a sense that, and they were coming from a certain cultural environment. So I knew that they wouldn't get it. And so I was trying to figure out how to break this to them. And by that point, aside from the gender stuff, we didn't have a very good relationship. So it wasn't like we were close to begin with. And it was just, I needed to try and figure out a way to communicate this with them. And at the end of the day, I didn't do it in time. <laughs> so, you know, my, my parents found out from someone else and sent me in flurry of emails saying, what are you doing? This is terrible. What's going on? And which is probably not the best way for them to have learned it. And it was also not the best way to navigate that conversation because we were doing it over me email. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't face to face and written text can be misconstrued. It can be misread. And it's, I think you say things in writing that you wouldn't say if you were facing someone. Um, and my mother was particularly, I would say, venomous <laughs> in response to my coming out. And it was, yeah, it was a very difficult time for everyone. And I really felt like I lost my whole family when my dad died. So it wasn't just losing him. 
it was losing my mother. It was losing, in some ways, my sisters too. They just stayed in the background. They didn't want to get involved. But I also lost the ability to communicate with any of the people I knew when I was in South Africa because I didn't know how to talk about it and I didn't know what kind of response I was going to get. And one of my dad's best friends actually sent me an email saying, your parents taught you how to be independent. Now's the time to go be independent and you know go do your thing, but give your mother a break basically was the message I got from that. So I did. I, I lost contact with everyone in South Africa at that point. It was a very lonely time because I also lost a close friend to suicide in the same year, six months before my dad died. And wow. I was just reeling because it was like, so I transition and then everything goes to crap. And is this God punishing me? Is this some kind of message from the universe telling me I'm making a huge mistake? And yeah, so that was a really dark time. But I also feel like it made me, it made it very crystal clear to me that I needed to choose how I wanted to show up in my life. And I can continue to fight with people, with my family, with my mother. I can continue to feel hurt about people not wanting to accept me, or I can, I can choose to focus on the things that give me joy. And I can choose to build some, some kind of meaning out of my life that is nourishing <laughs> rather than draining. Because at that point, it just felt like every interaction with my family was draining. And so I, I kind of walked away from my family at that point. I just kind of gave up at that point trying to convince them that I was a good person and mm -hmm. started to build my own family. And there were people all throughout my life, really, that had stayed close to me and that, you know, did accept me and all my complexity and all that. And I just chose to focus on those relationships. And so I proceeded with the medical transition, which, you know, is a long process and mm -hmm. so I, I went down that path and I tried to just put one foot in front of the next and rebuild my life and look for moments that are positive. And yeah, it's been a challenging road, but I think it's made me who I am today. And in those moments of darkness, what for you was that pinprick of light that you kept walking toward? I think it was the relationships that I did have that mm -hmm. got me through that. There were people, and I mean, there was therapy. I also went out and pursued therapy myself. And I was able to connect with enough people that saw something of value in me that even on the days where I felt like I did not have any reason to live, I knew there were enough other people that saw something in me that I was like, I got to figure out what it is that they see in me before I die. So I think that's what kept me going is those relationships. And what does living a courageous life mean to you? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question. I think for me, it means living in integrity. It's living... I don't always, I think, do the right thing, but I always try to do the right thing. And I think living courageously for me is about 
being willing to be wrong, but still being willing to be in the arena, to use your metaphor for your show, is still willing to engage and participate and learn. I think when we start to think we have all the answers and we become complacent, then we become dangerous because we're closing off from other people and from being able to grow. And for me, living courageously is being willing to be wrong and Mm -hmm. being willing to still engage. What would you do on your last day? I don't think it would be anything fancy. I think I would just want to spend it with my family, with my wife and with my fur babies, my two dogs, and (laughs) spend it on a beach somewhere by the ocean or somewhere in nature among the trees and just appreciate the beauty that there still is. I think every day we have an opportunity to seek that out and I still get surprised every day. There's always something new and something amazing that's happening. And I think I want to hold on to that ability because I think it can be really easy to fall into cynicism or resentment or wallow in your hurt sometimes. And it's very tempting to stay there, but it doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve anyone else. And so I really make a point of trying to find one thing that I'm excited about every day. And so, yeah, so for my last day, I would want to just look at the light, look at the sun shining through the clouds or the trees or pet my dog or cuddle up to my wife or something like that, because those are the moments that give our life meaning. What's your legacy or what would you like it to be? I mean, I hope that I can leave the world a little bit better than it was before I was there. Like, I I think I want to, not the entire world, but if I can make one person's life better, that's what I try to do with my psychotherapy. I'm not, I'm not trying to change everybody. Those relationships that I build with my clients, there is something sacred about that. And Mm -hmm. if I can have a healing, positive impact on one person's life, I should be so lucky. That is such an honor. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's the legacy that I want to leave. Mm. As somebody who's had the benefit of various practitioners over the years, it is definitely a life-changing experience to be able to have that, as you say, sacred trust with a practitioner who can help unlock some of the doors and see another way or just help you with some perspective one day when you need it. If you had an opportunity to have a five-minute conversation with someone living or dead, who would that be? (laughs) Again, it would probably not be anything fancy. I think it would probably be to spend more time with my father. Um, Mm. There was a lot of things unsaid. And... You know, I never doubted, even in the darker times, I never doubted that he loved me, even if he didn't know how to. But I hope that he knows that I loved him. And I think if I had the chance to talk to someone living or dead, it would be to make sure that he knew that he was someone that was really important and special to me. 
And even though he didn't always understand why I did what I did, and even though I never really understood why he did what he did, (laughs) um, it doesn't take away from the fact that I cared for him. And I hope that in a small way, you know, he was a psychiatrist. He did mental health counseling as well. In some way, every day that I get up in the morning to do the work that I do now is a way for me to honor him. And I, I would hope that he would be proud of that. Hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, it's been interesting to have this conversation. It's always having done the podcast as a host, my podcast, which I think there's a lot of overlap between our two podcasts in terms of themes. Absolutely, um, for sure. It's There's a safety in being the host because you're the one asking the questions. You're not in the limelight. There is a vulnerability that comes with switching those roles. So that's why I wanted to do that because if I'm going to be asking my guests to open up about some of the moments that made them who they are, which Mm -hmm. is what my podcast is about, then I need to be able to model that as well. And so today, like your questions are very thought provoking and yeah, it makes you think about yourself in a different way. And I think there is something really healing about telling our own stories and not just about telling them, but having them be heard by other people. And that's what I'm trying to create with my podcast. And I think so are you. And so I'm Mm -hmm. really grateful for this opportunity to do this today. That's great. So your podcast is called Softly Spoken. Yeah, it's called Softly Spoken, an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the moments that make us who we are. And it's really a conversation with people from all walks of life. I'm starting with people that I have some familiarity with and a relationship with. And so far, it's been really a cool way to connect with people I've lost contact with over years. Um, <laughs> yes. So that's been fun. But it's also been a chance to really get to see the resilience of people. I think sometimes we get so absorbed in our day-to-days and just getting through every new challenge that we're facing that we forget all the decision points along the way where we had to make a choice and we did make a choice. And I think it can be really healing for people to see their agency in their own lives and how they navigated very difficult situations to get to where they are. And I think as a listener, when we hear other people share their authentic stories, it helps us to see our own narratives in a new and different way. At least that's what I'm hoping for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's definitely what I love about podcasting as well, is just feeling like you're creating an opportunity for someone to hear something they need to hear. Yeah, and there's an element of that sacred space, I think, as well. That you're Mm -hmm. giving, I think, weight to people's lives through the process of recording it and sharing it with the larger community. And so there is an element of ritual to it as well. It's almost like a ceremony of shared humanity. And that's Mm -hmm. really something I'm interested in is for... There's so much polarities right now in our society Mm -hmm. in our larger civil discussions and i think sometimes we forget especially on social media that behind the screen there's actually a human being someone with feelings and thoughts and hopes and dreams and we can get so entrenched in our positions that we lose sight of that and as someone who's 
very interested in, in work around accessibility and diversity and those sorts of themes as well. What I like about podcasting is, is that it takes away all those exterior differences, right? Like you can't really yes. see if this is a you know, person with a disability or someone who's a different race or different ethnicity. That's all gone. All you have to go on is that universal voice, that, that thing that we all have. And so I think it, it get, gives us a freedom to get to know people on a level that's perhaps a little bit deeper than just surface, what you can see. And again, I think that's really magical. What a pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for this. I really feel privileged to have had a chance to get to know you a little bit better and look forward to sharing this. Awesome. Thank you. I will share Stefan's social media details and links to his mental health practice and podcast in the show notes. There are many resources online related to helping all of us further understand some of the topics we discussed, including the use of gender pronouns and creating more inclusive and accepting relationships. And if you are struggling or feeling suicidal, please seek help. I will provide some resources in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast and share this episode if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to it. If you'd like to help support this podcast, leave a rating or review wherever you listen, or feel free to shoot me a note via the website. You can also become a member of the arena. Again, go to my website, thearena-podcast.com and click on the support button. It's so greatly appreciated. And I promise I will not spam you. I look forward to sharing my next guest's challenging and courageous journey to having a family through pregnancies and miscarriages. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in The Arena. <laughs>